Welcome to The Edge of Act, the podcast where we explore the intersection of human stories and business success. I'm your host, Carolyn Crawford, and I'm thrilled to have you join me as we explore the minds of entrepreneurs, marketers, and visionaries who have mastered the art of alchemizing their personal journeys into their business success and learn how you can apply what they've learned to your own business. So whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur, a seasoned business owner, or simply someone fascinated by the power of human stories, The Edge Effect is here to offer you insights, inspiration, and a fresh perspective on what it truly means to make your mark in the world. Get ready to be moved, motivated, and challenged as we embark on this incredible journey together. So let's begin. I'm Carolyn Crawford, and this is The Edge Effect. Hello, everyone. Today, I am with Emily Harkwell, the powerhouse founder of Art of Sucra, a luxury cotton candy brand that has given a chic upgrade to your favorite childhood treat. Emily, welcome. I am so excited to learn more about you, Art of Sucra, and the human story behind your brand. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat today. Awesome. Okay. So like I said, I have many, many questions about Art of Sucra and, because it really is such a unique brand. So, But I'd like to start kind of before Art of Sucra really came to be and get an understanding of what was your background before this and what was that evolution up until the concept of Art of Sucra appeared? <laughs> I always like to joke that I've never really had a real job because I started the business straight out of college. Oh, wow. So I was wrapping up my senior year. My my degree is actually in psychology, which is normally pretty shocking to people. I think people just assume to be an entrepreneur, you have to have a degree in business, which is so not the case oh, <laughs> at sure. all. And I was simultaneously planning my wedding. I got married super young. My husband and I have been together since he was 15. So we literally were planning our our wedding. I was graduating school. He was still in school. He's a little bit younger than I am. And I was fully planning on going to graduate school. My, my plan was to go on and be a clinical mental health counselor. And through kind of a weird series of events, the cohort was filled and they put my application on hold. I was planning this wedding and I just... I had no idea what I was going to do at that point. And so through searching on Pinterest to find wedding favors, for whatever reason, that was the hardest part of planning wedding is finding something that nobody's just going to want to like throw away at the end of the night. I happened upon desserts as an option. And this was in 2016. So this was right at the height of kind of this Instagrammable upgrade movement. We started to see the sugar cookies that look more like art than they do actual cookies and cake pops were a thing and donut walls were at every, you know, new fun event that was popping up. And one of the things that kept popping up was cotton candy, but it was kind of scary packaging it was you know like the clown the, I think yeah. you probably know what I'm talking about like <laughs> the red know. clown on like the clear bags and and very much still that kind of like kitschy carnival vibe with just pink or blue cotton candy with no real flavor associated with it and so for whatever reason I just latched onto this idea that cotton candy was being left in the dust and nobody was doing anything with it and I really felt like there was something that I could upgrade to this. And because my head was in wedding planning, I was very much events focused. So I literally got the Instagram handle, got told this idea to my husband on the way home from our honeymoon. I had him trapped in the car for 20 hours. And I was like, Drew, I want to do this fully expected him to be like, girl, you're crazy. Go get a real job. Cause that's what I would have said to him if it would have been in reverse. And he didn't, he was super supportive. 
said, if this is a great idea, you need to do it. So literally secured everything on the car ride home, used the money from our wedding gifts to buy a cotton candy machine and started in events. So that was really how the idea for the business began. And I did events for four years until I had to pivot into what is the CBG space that we have now. Amazing. Oh my gosh. Okay. So that's, I love that you were just like, you know, I I know I need to do this literally in the car ride home. (laughs) Did you have any, like, what were, can I ask, like, what were some fears that were coming up for you as you were kind of doing it? And I guess also too, you said you used the, you invested the wedding money you received into this, I guess, what was that process like, or sorry, into a candy, a cotton candy machine? What was also like that process like, like, what did you, I've just never spoken to anyone who has a cotton candy business and don't even know how, how it's made, how it's done, things like that outside of being at these like, you know, events where they've been done. So curious just to get a little bit of insight into that process for you. Yeah, I had no idea either. I like like looking back on it. I was like, wow, I was really young and dumb, which ends up being amazing because I was young and dumb and didn't know what I didn't know. I think it's I think it's so interesting. And I, I think about this a lot. If you know me personally or you know me well, I think you would probably categorize me as a risk adverse person. I don't. I don't live like a risky lifestyle. I don't want to go on roller coasters. Skydiving would terrify me. And I like to be at home with my books and my dog on the couch. And so the fact that I just like was like, I'm starting a business is pretty out of character. I think most people would think for me, but it didn't feel that way. It didn't feel like a risky move. It didn't feel like I was stepping out and taking this huge jump. And I think part of that is because I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. My mom and dad owned businesses. So it felt very natural to me. And when I went to my parents who just paid for my college degree and tell them, actually, I'm not going to be a counselor. I want to start a cotton candy company. Most parents would probably completely freak out about that. And mine were like, cool, that sounds great. How can we help type of thing? So I think, I think I had definitely a leg up in in that space for sure. But as far as the process of how do you one actually make cotton candy, I actually like had my LLC and secure the business name before I'd ever even touched a cotton candy machine. So I self-taught all of this, this entire process. I was on YouTube learning how to spin cones of cotton candy. Believe it or not, a cotton candy machine does not come with a manual on how to actually make it. You would <laughs> think that that would be part of the process, but it's not. And so I literally had to learn everything from scratch. One of the things that I was really set on, and it's probably because I'm a pretty stubborn person, is going at my own pace. And I'm really thankful for that because it allowed me to move in a way that I was comfortable with. It was pushing myself out of my comfort zone in a way that I was ready for. And that also goes for just learning the business ins and outs, because kind of like you mentioned, you can't really just Google a lot of this stuff because cotton candy is so unique. It wasn't like I could just look to another business owner that had done the same thing as far as how do you make the product? What does pricing look like? What does process look like? I really had to learn all of that on my own, which meant that I took about a year of growing at a pretty glacial pace, but it was intentional. And that was also really important to building the foundation of where we are now. Okay. I love how you just said that. Uh, And thank you so much for sharing that insight because I want, I, and I have, like I said, I take furious notes. So one of which I really want to touch on because I think 
a lot of business owners, and I know I, I have experienced this myself, is that pressure to go quicker. And I really love how you were like, no, I need to go at my own pace with this. Like I can't, I can't F around with this. So I'm curious to know what, when you're talking about like your own pace, I know you mentioned in terms of like the learning of all the business aspects and stuff. Did that also include the marketing and the actual selling of it all as well? Yes, absolutely. And and I think what's was really challenging for me is that I like to believe that I I have a knack for marketing. It's what I enjoy the most out of business and and I still do the majority of our marketing today, which a lot of people find to be pretty shocking. And so I knew what I needed when I started. I knew I needed good pictures for Instagram. I knew that I needed, you know, email. I knew that I needed brochures. I knew that I needed word of mouth. I knew that I needed all of the things that encompass marketing, right? But I had literally a $0 budget on all of this. I couldn't pay a photographer. I couldn't do all of these things to, to kind of get my marketing off of the ground. And so I went really slowly with it. I tried my own hand at taking pictures on my phone. They are so embarrassing. Sometimes I look back at them and just die. Like I'll send you them. They're literally so bad. I will. It's they're literally so bad, but I ended up connecting with a friend that I went to high school with who was starting her own photography business. We were starting our businesses literally at the exact same time. And she needed subjects to shoot, to have a portfolio and I needed photos. So we literally did trades of service. And that is how I kind of built up the marketing side of things was continuing to just rally around a community of other business owners in the same place that I was. And we would meet each other's needs until I got to a point, obviously, where I could start paying people for what I needed. Okay. I love that because I think, like I said, I think it's so relatable. I think a lot of people are like, I've got a budget of $0. I need a lot more things than than $0 worth. And so I, I appreciate you sharing kind of what you, how you went about kind of doing it. And sometimes it really is scrapping it up, the scrap, making it yes. all kind of taping it all together, I should actually say. And oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I love what I love too is like, yes, okay, you look back and like the images, you know, you're like, especially I would imagine in comparison to now, like you're like, what the hell was I thinking or whatever? Literally. But I guarantee in the moment, like it's okay. And I think, just for anyone who listens to this, like, and that's why I'm like emphasizing this point about what you made, because so often when I start working with people or just even come across people, they're like, I'm so overwhelmed with marketing. I know I need to do it. I don't know where to start. And they feel this pressure and they feel that they're so behind. And that's why I wanted to emphasize what you said about going at your own pace, because especially if you're newer in business, like a couple of years, like obviously as you grow, as you start to get familiar, as you, as it seems from your journey, you know, like you, it just like, you have to just figure it out and you have to just kind of make whatever you've got work. And so that's why I wanted to emphasize that. And so I'm curious to know about that sort of, again, glacial pace process. And again, if you don't mind me asking, what were you feeling in those moments? Did you ever feel that you were behind or were you still very much like, no, I, I, I just, I need to just completely do this at my own pace. Look, it can be paralyzing, right? Like you get mm-hmm. so overwhelmed and you know that you need all of these things. And I, and I feel like, especially 
nowadays, and I want to be very careful in how I word this because I don't want it to come off the wrong way. But with social media now, I feel like there's such this push for charge what you're worth. And I a hundred, I a hundred percent agree with that. I, I back that hundred percent, but sometimes you don't know what you're worth. And I don't mean that in a way of like a self-confidence thing, but I mean that in a way of, I genuinely don't know how much it's going to cost me to do this event. I I'm going to charge them $75 because that's probably not even going to cover my gas and materials, but I don't know what it's going to take me to do that. So you have to learn and grow with it a little bit. And I feel like there's this narrative that it's not okay to do that. And you have to just charge $3,000 or whatever it is right out the gate. And and if you can do that and you have a a way to back that up, that's incredible. But I also just don't want to discount that it is okay to not know and to build up to that point, I guess. And I think that goes for marketing two is like, I, my first logo was an Etsy logo and I paid $99 for it. And to me at the time, that was so much money and, and looking back on it. And if you take any advice from anybody that does marketing or branding, they would tell you like, absolutely do not do that. But the reality is if I wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have had a business. And I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't have a website for like two years because I literally couldn't afford to pay someone for a website. So I just did everything off of Instagram and it wasn't ideal, but it was at my pace. It was within my budget and it worked for what, for what I was doing. I had an email address that was literally just like an iCloud email. It wasn't even a Gmail. Like that's how unofficial we were. And it was just artisucra at iCloud.com. People would email me for events. Again, there was literally no website. And it was even to the point where I didn't have like a PDF to have just pricing. Everything was done so custom, so manual by hand. And I think that there was a part of that that actually worked in my favor because I think it was a little charming at the time. And I think if it's done correctly, it also allowed me to really develop these relationships with my clients or you know people that were doing cart service that I still am close with some of those people today because it was a really personal interaction. And there's something special about that. I feel like, especially now. One million percent. And I, I want to touch on, actually, I'm going to touch on that point about the connections. I think at the end of the day, and I think this is where marketing and sales and just like, I think actually just the whole premise of marketing, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this, kind of gets a little clouded. Like we forget what it's there for. At the end of the day, marketing is there to help strengthen connections between who, who you and whoever you're trying to connect with. Marketing is good to help scale that. So people, so you connect with more people on a bigger, on a bigger scale, of course. But I think the sentiment of what you just said of like, no, I, honestly, like it helped me develop these relationships more. I also, you also learned how people respond to that stuff. And I think that comes with you just doing it custom. It, it comes with you just writing an email. It's nothing fancy. Like I tried the fancy stuff too. And then I was yeah. like, you know what? People actually don't give a fuck. <laughs> they don't, they don't really like, they yep. just need to know the details, what you've got or whatever. At the end of the day, if like, that's all you're doing, like, that's okay. Cause it's about, it's about the connection at the end of the day. 
I also think that it helps you keep a pulse on your business in a way that you wouldn't be able to otherwise. And I stand by that today. I have a team of like almost 20 people now, and I am still very involved in a lot of aspects of the business Mm -hmm. that most founders that have scaled to where I have probably aren't as much anymore or in the process of kind of moving away from that. But I'm still very much keeping an eye on our hello email address and our orders. And and I want to be a part of that because how else am I going to give our customers and our clients what they want if I'm not interacting with them on some level? And no matter what stage you're at, it really does give you this insight that you probably would be missing in the translation of kind of like making everything automatic. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think that's such a smart way to put it. It's like, and I like how you said it of like just keeping a pulse on it because at the end of the day, that customer experience matters and it does eventually in some shape or form translate to people who have yet to really experience you. And so I think it just kind of creates consistency around that. Also too, the fact that you do keep a pulse on it helps your, I would imagine helps your team understand kind of the quality of service that you're trying to provide and the level of communication and stuff. And uh, I know at least for myself, I I definitely relate to that because I'm very particular about how we communicate, making sure it's, you know, clear, concise, and also feeling like we genuinely give give a shit about what they're doing. So absolutely. um, So thank you for sharing that. I also want to kind of go back and because I really liked how your approach again to the pace that you went. And the reason why I want to kind of go back and dissect it is because I think there's a lot of good takeaways and, and especially starting with like the Etsy logo. I think a lot of, right. Like we go in being like, I need to have this amazing brand. And even as a marketer, obviously I went down that rabbit hole of being like, what's my brand, all the things, because I knew the value of it. But even for me, I bought my lo- my very first logo for $7 off of Fiverr because I was yeah. like, I just needed something. And at the time, $7 on a concept that I was like, all right, let's hope this works. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I appreciate that you shared like, yeah, sometimes you just got to start and sometimes that's okay to do it off of Etsy, off of Fiverr or like whatever, whatever that may be. Because it, and again, just touching on this, like, you what I really appreciate about you is like you just started and you were like I just it, that's enough and that's that's gotta work and it has clearly and so I just wanted to put make that sentiment out there what I also love is how you took advantage of again the resources that you had not ones that you were hoping to have and that included you didn't have a website so therefore you leveraged Instagram which I think is an extremely smart way but in, in terms of when we're talking about leveraging what you have, there are, I think people think of Instagram just for this specific example, right? Of, okay, I've got to post my things. I got to update people on whatever. And I think I love, I love websites because they're good. They're just good to like baseline. They're good safety net for things that I like they're good to obviously share more information. There's more flexibility, but I think using Instagram in lieu of a, in lieu of a website was extremely smart because at the end of the day to you and and correct me if I'm wrong, it was about establishing, like showcasing the product that you were creating and how else can you do that? Like a website has its limitations as well. So I think the way you went about it is interesting. 
And I also just want to make it clear now too, you don't like, if you go to our Instagram now, you're gonna be like, oh, she has 60,000 followers and she's got 1.3 million on TikTok. Like, of course she leveraged social media. I want to make it very clear that in the early days, I started that Instagram account from zero and I grew it to about 3000, maybe just shy of four in 2020. And that was with, we've never once paid for an ad to this day. I've never once paid for an Instagram ad, Facebook, TikTok, any of it. You don't have to have millions of followers, tens of thousands of followers to have a successful business, especially when you're starting. Like you can leverage Instagram with a couple hundred of followers and you can probably gain that even now in the climate of social media today, pretty quickly. So I just want to make that really clear to people because I know that that can be so intimidating nowadays of like, oh, well, of course, you know, they have this many followers, whatever. It's it's easy for them, quote unquote, but you can do it with a small amount too. I'm so glad you said that. I'm so, so glad you said that because 1 million percent and like, and also too, I appreciate that you said like, we started at zero, what, in 2016, I think mm-hmm. it was. And you said by 2020, you said you had about 4,000, let's say. Not even, so, just shy. Yeah. So like that's four years, give or take, right? Of probably consistency, probably experimenting, probably being like, I don't, let's hope, let's hope <laughs> like, right. this all makes sense, right? So I just want to call that out too, because it's just, I really appreciate you sharing, being transparent about that journey because that is overlooked a lot because you're right. A lot of people are like, well, she's got 60,000 followers on Instagram now. Like, Right. Of course, she's going to say that, but like how it was probably a grueling journey to get there. And it probably felt like it was never going to get there at times if I <laughs> make that exactly. assumption. Yes. Yeah. Lots of blood, sweat and tears. <laughs> Do you mind sharing? Okay. So I want to, I know that there are so many, like I said, I can ask so many questions about, about your business because I think it was, it's so fascinating, but I think I want to get into the overall brand of Artisucra, like, and how has that evolved from when you initially started, especially on the journey of how you learned and, and again, all self-taught, which is wildly impressive. And so I'd like to kind of get an understanding of like, how did, like, even from that first Etsy logo, like, what did you envision for Artisucra? Yeah. So it's so interesting to me. I feel like our I could talk about this forever and I won't, I'll keep it. I'll try to keep it brief. I can as well. So that's dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) We could be here all day. No. So the, the original Etsy logo is so funny because I was, I had a very clear vision for this business before it even started. I did not want it to be childish. I wanted it to be very adult, very elevated, very chic, something that you would want to have at your wedding that you were spending a lot of money on. I didn't want it to have this fair baseball game, childish, kitschy feel to it. And so I didn't want there to be a cone of cotton candy in the original logo. And as a matter of fact, there's not a cone of cotton candy in our now logo. And it was kind of watercolor. That was the era. It was rose gold and emerald green were our colors. And if you think of in, in the light pink, if you think about that, that makes absolutely zero sense for a cotton candy company, which you would think that's dumb. Why would you do that? And I would like to say that it was very intentional and it was just not for the reason why it ended up being smart. 
because it made people ask questions. Mm -hmm. And I have found that that is actually a really beautiful gift. First of all, art of sucra is sucra is not English. It's French for sugar. And so people are like, what, what is this? Do you make popcorn? Like art of sugar, art of source? What, what is this? And if you, you get to have a conversation with people that way, they're not automatically going to assume things about your business that you don't want them to assume because they're going to be intrigued enough to ask questions. And that was something that I had to really learn along the way and was kind of a happy accident. And then from there, I was able to, you know, was doing enough events. It was my full-time job. I was able to hire a local designer here in Cleveland to do kind of the round two of branding. And this is when I had a website and I had a new logo and we still kept that emerald green and pink. This, this logo was a little more elevated and it's actually what I transitioned the brand with, which kind of goes back to what you were talking about of moving at my own pace because COVID happens. I have to shut down the event side of things and I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, it's supposed to be two weeks then it turns into a month then turns into two months. And it's like, oh gosh, events probably aren't coming back for a while. So I had to pivot. And I, this is so ironic because I always said I would never go into packaging cotton candy. Cotton candy is very delicate. I always was like, I'll never do that. And now I just laugh because here I am making thousands of pouches of cotton candy a week, but I never wanted to do that. And, and I found a, a design team who's still my design team today. Their names are Molly and Jackie. They are God's gift to this earth when it comes to all things marketing and design. And I came to them and said, Hey, can you help me with packaging? And they said, absolutely. But I said, I can't afford for you to do a complete rebrand right now. You have to use my logo that I currently have, which I think is every designer's secret nightmare. And they were, you know, like amazing supportive. And they were like, oh my gosh, of course, no problem. Now the original, the second iteration of the logo was not made for packaging. So, you know, the artwork file probably wasn't exactly the way that it should have been to go to print. And the colors that were selected also have to probably use a spot color on them to get exactly what you want. So we ran into a ton of issues, which then led us to fully rebranding last year in July. And I could not be happier with where we are with that. Our packaging is literally award-winning. It's so stunning. But when I tell you, I never want to rebrand again. I mean that in my heart of hearts, it's really challenging to run a brand while rebranding because you have to make packaging decisions and you have to you know, time things out perfectly. So that's kind of the evolution. But again, it's really just kind of a through point of, I feel like my whole journey here that you have to go at your own pace. Because if I would have kind of rushed it, I should have rebranded at the exact same time that I did the packaging, but I just, I couldn't do it. And, and it ended up being more work in the long run, but it worked out exactly the way that it should have worked out. For sure. Oh my gosh. I, that's fascinating. Just getting those insights into that process, because I think at least again, I'm, I'm a nerd when it comes to all of this stuff, but I think a lot of people, they don't know what that process is, right. They don't know that they need to think about like, Oh, what is the versatility of my brand? And I really appreciate you calling that specific part out because no one thinks like, it's really difficult. Like, 
unless you're working with a designer who really is experienced and can just think that for you, like no one thinks of it basically. And it has to be the right designer. I think that's totally. super important too, because designing something for web is so not the same as packaging. That is a whole other universe that I have learned so much and that I knew nothing about. And the problem is you don't really know it's an issue until it's too late type of thing. And then you're scrambling. So you're spot on with that. Totally. 100%. So I'm curious, cause I love just to go back to sort of this vision of this rebrand because I love your brand. And I think it is very, I think you did such a good job to what you're saying about earlier, how you're like, I didn't want it to be this kitschy thing. I didn't, I wanted to avoid this traditional clown on a cone and all of the things like you wanted to provide a level of sophistication. Your brand now is extremely playful, extremely sophisticated, or I would say actually with the flair of sophistication, because it is more, it is very inviting. It's, it's attention grabbing. And I really appreciated that you said like, you know, even the name from the get go, because you've had the same name from day one, day zero, basically. Right. Right. So for even the name adds that flair of sophistication and because of how you spell it, you spell it art, A-R-T-E, Sucre, like, you know, there's that play, that play on the different language and things like that. And it does, it provokes, even if no one's asking you directly, Hey, what the hell are you talking about? It just provokes this intrigue of, huh, what is this place about? And it lends to, to a different evolution. If ever you want to branch out of cotton candy or whatever, obviously, I don't know what your, your vision is, but it just lends so well to exactly what you're doing. So I'm obsessed with it. And, and yeah, I just, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in pretty much every <laughs> design conversation. that you had <laughs> Okay. So you switched from events to CPG. How obviously, and you just shared a little bit about that process of, of needing to do a rebrand, making sure the branding works for CPG, but even still you mentioned that you never wanted to do cotton candy like CPG ever because, it, and well, actually I can probably assume, but I won't. Can you share a little bit about why you didn't, you were so against it? Was it due to like yeah. a kitschy feel or something else? A little bit of both. What I, what I really fell in love with the business is the fact that it was experiential. The fact that you, I don't know how familiar you are with the process of making cotton candy, but we have these really adorable, I had these custom carts made that were white and the cotton candy machine has this acrylic bubble over the top that you get to see the whole process from start to finish. And it's really magical. And people of all ages are like, oh my gosh, how does this work? Like, give me the science behind it. It looks like magic. Like, what is this? So there's something that's really beautiful about that experience that I don't feel like you can capture as much in packaging. However, I would argue that our cotton candy glitter bombs that you drop into a drink and the glitter flows out really kind of encapsulates that. I was, as, I was just about to comment on that because it definitely yeah. does. Yeah. It's it's it gives the same energy, right? We really say that our product is an experience. It's meant to be experienced. So I'm I'm very thankful that I found a way to be able to take the magic of events and put it in to a packaged good, which is great. 
The other thing is cotton candy is really delicate. I think I touched on this earlier, but we like to say she's very finicky. If it is humid, if it is raining, if it's whatever, it'll disintegrate and it'll, it, the machines move slower and all of this. And because of this reason, a co-packer is a very challenging thing to find for a cotton candy company. Does it exist? Yeah, but you've probably seen it in your grocery stores and the cotton candy is like shriveled and it just doesn't look good. And you're like, am I going to have to go to the dentist after eating this? There's so many preservatives in it, like all this crud. And I really didn't want that. So we do our own manufacturing in house, which is not obviously really a, a marketing conversation, but that is a whole other just beast of its own that I really didn't want to have to tackle. And I did tackle. So I'm my office that I'm sitting in right now is literally in our 3000 square foot production facility. So I've got my entire spin team on the other wall, just whipping up cotton candy right now. So those were kind of the main reasons. I wasn't sure how I was going to find a packaging that I liked that was going to be able to sustain the cotton candy in a way that it had a shelf life at all, let alone one that's six months. And again, that took just a lot of trial and error. And I couldn't just Google it. I couldn't pick up the phone and call a co-packer and say, hey, American girl needs 20,000 glitter bombs for their cafes. Can you make this happen? I have to walk myself into the studio and make 20,000 glitter bombs. Wow. So that's that's kind of the whole reason why I didn't want to do that. Ultimately, I'm so much happier and so glad that I pivoted, but I'd, that was the reason why I was so hesitant in the beginning. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. And I sure, right, like it's not technically marketing, but in my mind it is because no matter what, at the end of the day, it's part of the customer experience. And so yeah. I pre, and we've had, I don't know if the basically previous guests that I've spoken with have who make consumer packaged goods or just direct to consumer goods of any kind, they manufacturing, they always mention it because it is a very sticky point. I think in yes. like so many businesses, because you have to preserve that quality and you have to do it in a way that also is cost efficient. You know, it's, it's beyond, it's like, you have to, you have to basically dig for the things you don't know what you're exactly. digging for. And so I think I, I appreciate you just quickly touching on it because I think uh, to me, it's fascinating as an entrepreneur and I would imagine it's fascinating for others as well, but also too, I really appreciate that. And it kind of, and it lends to your brand. You, you literally ended up creating a 3000 square foot manufacturing space because you needed to control the customer experience at the end of the day. That yep. is hands down. I mean, that that lends exactly to what your brand is and who you are as the founder of that brand. So, and again, kind of touches on like how you keep a pulse on everything too. So I commend you for even doing that because I probably would have been like 3000 square foot, like what the hell? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Why are we talking about 20,000 orders? Like, are you kidding me? I'm tired. You know what I mean? To be clear, I still do feel and say all of those things. That's so, true. That's just fair. to be clear. That stuff never leaves. I don't, I don't know if I've ever met anyone who's like years down the yeah. line that they're like, okay, yeah, like we're just swimming. Like, I think every single person I've talked to has been like, why am I doing this? Like every yeah. other day. <laughs> Literally, it's a, it's a roller coaster, right? It's the high highs and the low lows of like, for this sure. is amazing. And like, oh my God, what did I do to myself? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> why did I sign up for my, this for like, oh my God. Yeah. Okay. So that's so, so interesting. And again, like I, I think 
I want to touch on the glitter bombs and I want, because I think it went, and if you don't mind me making this assumption, you probably mm-hmm. created um, this unique spin on traditional style cotton candy using flavors. Obviously the packaging was really beautiful and all of that thing, all of that stuff. But did it stop there before the glitter bombs? Like, was it re- like, how did you kind of experiment with that product itself? So the glitter bombs were actually part of when I was doing events. I've had the glitter bombs for years, but it wasn't packaging. It was what we call live glitter bombs. So you, we would put it like next to a bar or do a champagne wall. And I would go in person, spin the champagne cotton candy, do the glitter process and then top glasses. So guests would then push in the cotton candy in person Mm -hmm. and the glitter would come out. So that's, it's a common misconception. People are like, oh, she just had this new idea and decided to transition. No, I've been doing the glitter bombs for years before I even had the packaging, but the glitter bombs are what really skyrocketed us on social media and on TikTok specifically, just because I think it is a really unique, you don't see that every day. And we're definitely at the, the, you know, the ones that are really innovating and making that happen. And also it is just so mesmerizing to watch. So the glitter bombs are what we call our bread and butter. They are our hero product. Our cotton candy is also delicious. And I feel like kind of the unsung hero. We sell a lot of it. Don't get me wrong. But the glitter bombs, I think, are what we're mainly known for if somebody knows our brand. So cool. And I agree that like it really is just so unique. And again, lends itself to your overall brand that you are putting a different spin on a on a traditional or in familiar treat like that's yeah. that is it and it all and I really love how innovative you are with that and doing so in something that's like kind of always trendy right like we had there's always kind of food trends we had the cupcake trend we had the the donut walls like you said like all of these sort of activities and sort of immersive experiences with food and this is something that to me feels very timeless because it's something that's so easily drop in and it's beautiful you because you from what I could tell you paid very close attention to how it actually looked how it felt once you dropped it in and everything like that and so I really appreciate that and again like everything that you've done has been so smart as part of the overall brand which is very difficult to accomplish so again I commend you so I want to talk about Instagram and TikTok for a bit, because I agree that that probably is like, I think you mentioned it skyrocketed your following on those. Can you share about that process, how you went into that strategy? And for those who may not be familiar, your, from what I can see is and, and appreciate about your TikTok and your content that you put out there. It's like, you're not actually selling the product. You're exactly giving that experience. So I want to, if you can share your insight and how that approach came to be, that would be amazing. I am not a saleswoman. I will tell you that through and through. As a matter of fact, if you're talking to me, I'm not going to be selling you on our product, probably to the point that it's like bad. Like my right hand, her name's Emma. She's like, you should probably hype this up a little bit more. And I'm like, no, that's what I've got you for. You're my hype girl. I'm like, if you like it, cool. If you don't, that's cool too. But I don't know that that's wise, but I'm just being honest. <laughs> that's what it is. But I started posting on TikTok in 2020, like everybody else, because I was bored at home. And my husband and I were sharing TikToks back and forth. He was still working, thank God, full time, you know, during everything. And I was at home cleaning linen closets. So, you know, I got bored. And the original content was 
the day in the lifestyle before day in the life was really a thing on TikTok. This was back when like we were still just dancing and we were stuck in the house and that whole vibe. So I was kind of just talking about like, Hey, I have this small business and here's what I used to do. And now I'm not really doing anything. And then it transitioned into when things kind of slowly started to open back up. Some people were like, Hey, how can we support you? Can we do to go orders? You know, is that a possibility? And I was like, sure. So I bought some deli containers literally on like Webstaurant and was just going, I had a 200 square foot little studio that was mainly for like the health department when I have events and I'd go in there and I'd just spin up cotton candy as much as I could on my own. And people would locally come into our parking lot and, you know, social distance, pick them up type of thing. And I started recording that and I got a little bit of traction. Remember I got one video that had like 11,000 views and I was like, oh my God, I have made it. This is amazing. Like, oh my goodness. And so it got to the point where I was creating content and posting three videos a day consistently. And I would like to point out that I am well aware that that is a lot and it's not always sustainable. The place that I was at in the business and where I was at in my life, I was able to to do that because there was literally nothing else going on. I will say, and I'm sure you hear this a lot, consistency is absolutely key. And I don't care how many videos it is, as long as it's consistent. If it's once a week, that's fine. If it's consistent type of thing, kind of going back to moving at your own pace. But I was able just to produce more and more and more content. And we had one video go really viral. I think it has almost like 26 million views now. And every time we'd have a video, you know, get more and more views, the Instagram would just go up, just go up, go up. We had a business insider article written about us because of TikTok. Any press that we've had has been really organic through, again, just people finding us on on TikTok. And it's been, I would say TikTok was not slow. We, I hit a million followers in about six months since then it's been kind of slow, but the algorithms changed. And it, it also got to a point where it was too much because I was ready to drop the first drop of our online store. And I, I had to move slowly. And so we would spin, I think I did like 2000 pouches of cotton candy, which is a ton of work at the time. I had like a tiny team of like eight people and we spun that much. And then we just would do drops and it would sell out within 40 minutes. And it was all because of TikTok. So I did that for the entire first year. The The store was not open 24 seven and we just would do these drops because we literally couldn't keep up. And so when that started happening, I had to take a big step back from TikTok and it also started to become not a good place for my mental health. Like it would be 3 a.m. and I'd be scrolling comments and you'd be amazed at what people will say on the internet to you, even if it's a cotton candy company. So yeah, and I, I will also say too that it's not really my face on TikTok. It's my voice. Mainly a, a couple of videos have me in it, but I was able to find a niche in a way that's a voiceover style, which is really great because I can, you know, come into the studio with my hair pulled up with no makeup on and still film content and edit it and have something to post. And I'm, I'm still the one that does it all. So I'm still the one that's making content, editing, posting, all of that. Oh my gosh. I love that whole journey. And thank you again for being so transparent about the process that you took and the approach that you took. And, and I'm going to say this 18 million times, it's going to get so redundant, but like everything that you do has lended to what the core of Artisupra is. 
which is that experiential um, perspective and approach to everything that you do. And I love that that really is the approach you and that you took. And it started with that customer service level of inter of filming those interactions. And I appreciate that you emphasize consistency because it doesn't at the end of the day, like you said, you could post it once post once a week or, and it's not even posting. It's whatever it is, whatever marketing that you are doing, just got to do it consistently and, and get yourself out there. So I appreciate you, you emphasizing that because I think a lot of people will, will take that to heart. But I think too, when it comes to, you know, that voiceovers and I agree, I agree, like you never know what people are going to say on, and it's very vulnerable putting yourself on to these channels, especially your, it's like, especially as like, when you're an entrepreneur, it's like, you're putting not just yourself on there, you're putting your brand, your, li- all, all your entire, like how you make a living, your livelihood, all of the things on there. So it's very vulnerable. So I'm curious to know, and again, I, it all lends itself to that experiential piece how did you, did you know, like when you were creating these like kind of voiceover styles, like how, what kind of went into figuring out like, okay, what can I film? Like, what can I record or what do I really, what kind of message do I really want to get across in these, in this content? I'm lucky because we do our own manufacturing again, kind of going back to that control element that you were talking about. So there's not a piece of the process that I can't walk right out my office door and film, which is beautiful. And it makes for endless content ideas. And that type of creativity really fuels me. I enjoy that. It comes very naturally to me. I will be dead honest with you. I have never once written a script for a single TikTok voiceover. It's it's just kind of how my brain works. I'm also dyslexic. And so reading something like off of a script without practicing it a thousand times is not, I'm just going to trip over my words essentially. So it works better for me to have an idea for a concept of a video of what I want to get across, why I'm sharing it, and to just kind of start from the beginning and I pace myself out to the end of the video. So the first recording I heard, I rarely ever get it spot on. And if I do, you can hear me yelling, very excited from my office. My whole team's like, she got it. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it'll take me an hour to voice over one 30 second video. And I still won't even get it right and have to either just settle with this is not perfect. It's going live and I don't care because that I'm a very big proponent of that. Nothing will ever be perfect. You have to just release stuff into the world, even if it's not ready yet. And sometimes releasing it into the world ends up working out because either the video goes viral because there was a glitch or something you didn't notice or whatever, or even like product wise, sometimes you just need customer feedback to understand what the problem is. And I know that that sounds really scary, but if you can laugh on to that. It's actually pretty freeing. And I would say from a content kind of strategy standpoint, one of the things that I feel like has done so well for the brand is that people love to give their opinion. So if you can set them up in a way that they can share what they want to see, what they like, how they would do it, those comments, that engagement is going to flood in. And that has worked really, really well. So kind of like a this or that, or I have this problem with this custom order, any ideas type of thing. And, and we all know that there's a touch of marketing that's a little you know, playing the strings behind the scenes. And I think if you can lean into that a little bit, but in a way that doesn't feel gimmicky or shady or any of those 
things that can actually really boost your brand. And then people feel like they're invested, which is also key to growing a really active and in-tune community. I think that's such a smart you just did that in such a smart way because you're right. There is people ask for engage. Everyone talks about like engage your audience, but I don't think people really understand like what that actually means in a way that doesn't feel kind of cookie cutter or just gimmicky or whatever. So I really appreciate that you were like, no, we actually were asking them stuff that we could have, could really use their answers on, you know what I mean? And like really engage them. Because also too, it makes them feel part of what you're doing and then lends to loyalty as well. Absolutely. So I love that. It's so creative. Oh my gosh. Like I'm just, like I said, I can pick your brain all day long with it. So I, uh, just to be mindful of your time, like what has been some unexpected challenges that you've experienced since this whole evolution? Oh boy. <laughs> Growing a team is equal parts the hardest and most rewarding thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's really challenging. I have found, especially if you have a social media following, because people have a lot of assumptions about what it's going to actually be like to work because they see the 30 seconds. They think, oh my God, they have so much fun. And yes, we have a blast here, but like also 90% of the time we're just like working really hard. Mm-hmm. And so that can be a little bit of a challenge. For me, I feel like operationally, that is just the one that kills you because I've spent so much money, so much time, so much energy making really, really big mistakes. And I don't take any of it back because I've learned so much. And I do believe there is just such a thing as you've got to make the mistakes to learn at some point. But our original cotton candy glitter bomb packaging melted in the mail. And we didn't know that until surprise, it melted in the mail. So we ended up having to pull our like main product for almost six months before we oh could write the packaging. Like looking back, it's just, you have to laugh because if you don't, you'll cry, which I do a lot of that too. But <laughs> there's been, I like don't know how we paid our bills like some months. Like it just, it always ends up working out, which is such a, a gift that I'm aware is a, is a privilege, but also there have definitely been times where I'm like, what am I doing? How are we going to fix this? And, and kind of what we like to say around the studio is that we always work it out. We always figure it out. There hasn't been a single time that we haven't figured it out. And second, everything happens as it should. Even if it doesn't feel that way in the moment, if you look back on it, you're like, wow, I couldn't see it, but that worked out exactly the way that it was supposed to. And if you can kind of hold on to those two things, it can give you a little bit of hope in the really dark and hard moments. For sure. Oh my God. Such a good takeaway, such a good takeaway because it's so, so true. And I think I think your challenges sure maybe be unique to you, but ultimately all the lessons that you've learned, I think apply to pretty much every business owner. It's like, yeah, you're going to hit like, I, and I've definitely experienced it too. Of like, just, you just hit your lows, you hit setbacks. You just are like, what the hell? Like everything's gone awry. Yep. <laughs> like what's going on. So I appreciate like that positive outlook of just like, it's all going to work out and you have, that means you have to learn. X. And I would imagine that those learning lessons, you know, now you have better packaging. Now, you know, even more about the risks of shipping and all of the things that again, lend itself to the customer experience. So I think, I think, I think it's amazing. So my last question for you is what's kind of next, what's your vision for Art of Sucra and 
and and kind of where do you think that market that is going to ha- or how it, how do I put this sorry I'm now jumbling my words but like how do you envision the marketing of it evolving yeah so I think for us right now to to really talk about where we're going next is we have to figure out a way to up production and to scale because I feel like we've done we've done really well in the D2C space and and where we're currently excelling and what I where I want to really see us moving is kind of more of that in between of the events again not so much spinning cotton candy fresh but being a part of concerts and big things that are happening with that experiential moment so really leaning into bar and restaurant programs tackling you know amusement parts concerts we just did 5000 glitter bombs for beyonce like things like that that we really have this level to customize down to make a blue ivy cocktail for any artist that wants something similar with custom packaging, custom glitter, custom flavor, all of that. That's really where I see us kind of moving more into that space. So cool. So cool. Oh my gosh. I cannot wait to see. I really can't. Thank you. Okay. Last thing before I let you go, what is, what's one key takeaway or one thing that you would give to business owners? The hardest part is just starting. And I know that that is so cliche, but just start, just grab the Instagram handle, whatever it is that you're putting off or is kind of hanging above your head. Cause we all have that thing. Just do it. It's not nearly as bad as you think it's going to be. And you're going to feel so, so much better <laughs> when you do it. And then second to that is find a community, met DM people on Instagram, slide into other founders that you respect, email, whatever it is, because being an entrepreneur is crazy lonely. I don't care how big your team is. It is still lonely. And it's a really unique experience that nobody can relate to unless they've been in your shoes or are in your shoes currently. So I would really recommend finding your people that can get exactly what you're going through. I love that. What a great send off. Thank you so much, Emily. This was so much fun. And how can we support you? Yeah. Feel free to follow us at Artisucra literally everywhere. It's artisucra.com. And thank you so much for having me on. This was amazing. That's it for this week's episode of The Edge Effect. But the journey doesn't end here. We encourage you to take the lessons learned from our guests and apply them to your own entrepreneurial endeavors. As you navigate the ever-evolving world of branding and marketing, remember that it doesn't have to be overly complex. But communicating your brand effectively is an ongoing journey. It requires continuous refinement, a deep understanding of your audience, and an unwavering commitment to stay true to your story, the unique edge that sets you apart. Stay tuned for future episodes where we continue to unravel the challenges of branding and marketing through the incredible impact of human stories. Until next time, keep embracing the edge, embracing your story, and making a difference through your business. I'm Caroline Crawford, and this has been The Edge Effect.